Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Our summer sermon series is entitled Pandemic of the Heart, and I was giving a great deal of thought, especially in the last two months, about what I might say to you this summer as a distinctive word uh, and a timely one. And given our uh, last year and a half, which involved a great deal of uh, strife that came from externalized sources, whether that was the political realm or the epidemiological realm, (laughs) Uh, we have uh, suffered in some ways a great deal, and uh, that suffering has either created or has exhumed all sorts of undealt with material in our lives that, uh, if untreated, will cause pain. And so I thought it might be wise to look at uh, the spiritual pandemic that has occurred So I'm going to be speaking about a variety of subjects this summer uh, with the hoped-for goal uh, being uh, awareness and healing, awareness of where we really are and what we really need, and uh, healing that God can supernaturally apply to the damaged places within our own uh, experience. And so uh, tonight we're going to turn our attention to James, James chapter 4. And uh, in James chapter 4, he, like a good pastor, is warning his uh, people about a uh, social disease and then offering them a spiritual treatment. In verses 1 through 5, we see him uh, exhume this social disease. And in verses 6 through 10, he offers the spiritual treatment. So that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight, and then conclude with a word regarding love. Uh, and how you know that uh, your, your love that you're demonstrating towards someone else is healthy rather than harmful. So let's begin at the beginning with the social disease, which James labels for us. He calls it passion. Passion is the disease. This is what our text says in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James criticizes passion. He offers a critical word regarding passion. And I don't know if that strikes you as strange. It certainly strikes me as strange because within the linguistic currency of our times, passion is almost uniformly seen as a positive rather than a negative. In fact, if you don't have any passion, the thought is that you're, uh, you're sort of bereft of the fullest human experience. If your marriage doesn't have passion, you need to go to a marriage seminar so that the passion can increase. If you go see your guidance counselor in high school, they're going to ask you, what is your passion in life? And you're supposed to pursue that. Uh, Well, even though it's contrary to our current linguistic diet, Scripture is very wary about passion and often links it to sin. Uh, Here are a few verses just to uh, prove my point. Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, and passion. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, do not live in passion, in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
Romans 7, verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work within our members, bearing the fruit of death. So, have I convinced you that at least to some degree, Scripture is a little bit concerned with passions and links them to sin, and particularly sin's inflammation? So it begs the question, what does it mean by the word passion? Well, I suppose it could be defined variously, but the Greek word that is used here for passion is hedone, hedone, which is where we get the word hedonism, hedonism. And so when James is critiquing passion, and much of the time when the New Testament is critiquing passion, he is not talking about a zest for life, a little bit of enthusiasm for artisanal bread or medieval tapestries or cross-country skiing. The fact that you like these things, that could be very well terrific. No, instead, it seems that when Scripture references passion and critiques passion, it is critiquing a controlling fixation, a possessive mode of action, a mode that hijacks us, hijacks our emotional life, and drives us toward pleasure or relief. In other words, passion is not just an action that one would take. It's a mode of being from which actions are derived. Uh, it is something that controls, compels. And this is why perhaps ancient literature uh, sometimes would depict the passions as a multi-headed hydra. Do you know what a hydra is? It's a dragon with many heads. It was depicted that way because, like a hydra, uh, passions can be rather violent. And sometimes those drives are in competition with each other. So it's a violent monster with competing drives that tug us in various directions. Well, James, in this passage, is tracing out how exactly the passions afflict various aspects of life, both social and spiritual. He traces out both social and spiritual problems here. Uh, he mentions this in verse 1 and uh, verse 2. He mentions it twice, that when the passions run amok and are out of control, our social lives suffer. This is why he talks about fighting and quarreling. Mentions it twice, fighting and quarreling. Uh, now, we don't know who is fighting or what they're fighting about. We do know that it ends in a mafia-esque murder at some point, James points out. Um, but uh, the fighting and quarreling may have to do with the haves versus the have-nots. That's a big issue in the epistle of James, those who are wealthy and those who are on the other end of the income spectrum. And there was an unholy war between the two groups. Maybe he's referencing that, maybe he's not. We don't know exactly what the cause of the fight was. All we know is that the passions are inflaming people to the degree that they are having tumult between uh, different groups, different people. And, and if you have ever been in a mood in which the passions are ruling and reigning, you know that it doesn't take much to create a fight. I remember being at a very unpleasant picnic with nobody here. Don't worry, nobody here. Um, but somebody had forgot to, to put out um, the, the ketchup. They put out mustard, and they put out barbecue sauce. But the husband in the family was very irritated that nobody listened to him about the ketchup. And so he turned to his children, and he said, You never listened to me about anything. All I wanted was ketchup out for everybody to use. But the ketchup is not here. It's like I shouldn't even exist. I mean, so ketchup turned into a death wish. 
I mean, it seems extreme, but you've been there, right? I mean, where something little happens, and it somehow touches a nerve that runs right to your core, and you absolutely erupt. Well, that's about being gripped by the passions, taken over by the passions. That's when the hydra within wins. And this happens in institutions. It happens in churches. It happens in uh, the academy. Is that people get co-opted by drives, that cause them to fixate on particular things and deduce all sorts of judgments about other people based on their current fixation. And when they're in that mode, there is no reasoning with them. Logic does not prevail. And that's what James is facing into, a social ramification of the, of the passions. He also talks about a spiritual ramifications of the passions whenever he uh, speaks about prayer. He writes this about prayer. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions, to spend it on your passions. In other words, passions don't just remain between relationships. They invade the most sacred space. They invade the space where you connect with God. They want to rule that too. And he's saying that even your prayers have been poisoned by passion. You know, uh, I, I was uh, speaking with uh, a, a woman in Philadelphia who had lost a fortune due to the coronavirus and its ramifications. And now she, uh, she, lost, she, she owns four homes, lost two of them, and now lives a simpler and fairly uncluttered life. But she's not hurting, you know, financially, like she'll be okay. But she said, you know, the only thing I want from God is to have everything back the way it was. I want my other two homes, and I want my income level to be what it was. And I thought to myself, but actually the removal of these things from your life, and I'm not minimizing the pain in that, but the removal of them has made you a much more pleasant and humble person. It's actually helped you a great deal. And should God answer your prayer to have everything back that you've lost, it might, act, it might deform your character even further. Because sometimes that's what we want. We pray that our idols would be returned to us. And God loves us too much to answer our prayers in that way. So even our prayers can uh, be poisoned or contorted by our passions. That's James' situation. What about yours? And what about mine? What about our passions? What activates your inner hydra? What triggers the passions within? Is it the insatiable need to be noticed? That is, having your contribution to an institution, to a job, to a family, to a committee, appreciated and publicly heralded? Is it perceived inequality where you, know, you seek as a person to, to notice and right all wrongs within society, being kind of the uninvited Judge Judy in every situation? I thought that was very funny, but you didn't laugh. Um, thank you. Pity laughs. I love it. I'm, I'm not above it. Or maybe it's uh, what, what uh, triggers your passion or bad leaders. Have you ever obsessed over a politician that you despise? I mean, absolutely obsessed over it? Even though you don't know this person, they don't know you, but they're living in your head rent-free for years at a time. Or maybe it's social media in which you evidence the vocabulary of a grad student and the emotional maturity of a seven-year-old. Uh, or maybe it's uh, being uninformed or being perceived like you're being kept out of the loop, like everybody's in on a secret, but you're not in on the secret because they know that you would be the whistleblower, right? And if you, if, if you lack data, you assume the worst. It's a conspiracy. So everything is potentially Nixonian. Uh, well, my uh, uh, one of my uh, heroes is Dr. Chilito, the one of the last uh, living students of uh, Carl Jung, who said, um, she's a psychoanalyst in, in the city, and she said very famously, do you have a feeling or does the feeling have you? That's a way to detect if you're in the throes of the passions. Do you have a feeling or does the feeling have you? So when you are hurting, 
but when you express it, when you cry, when you call a friend, when you make an appointment with a counselor, when you bow before God and say, please help me, that's having a feeling. But when you don't talk about it, but instead you sleep in for like a week, you eat a pound of cheesecake, you go to Wendy's three times in a day, you spend $2,000 in Home Depot, you gossip to all who would potentially listen to you, and then you rage out at some cashier at Aldi, that's when a feeling has you. And so that's my question. What keeps you up at night? What provokes gossip? What stokes the fires of resentment and bitterness? What about the, all the passive-aggressive uh, commentary that, that, that spews forth from our mouths? Where is the passion at work? Well, he wants to warn us about this social disease because it can ruin everything in our lives. It really can. When the passions inflame, we cause pain to ourselves and to others. So that's the social disease. And then he offers, in verses 6 through 10, a spiritual treatment, which we can very uh, simply label humility, because that's how he labels it. Now, he says in verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And notice that, that whenever we are inflamed in our passions, and when we are secure in ourselves, we are an enemy of God. That's what it says. Uh, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I want to say something about how uh, he expresses humility in this passage. Uh, James sees humility as both theological as well as emotional. Theological and emotional. Theological meaning it has to do with God. Emotional meaning it has to do with our feelings. This is his theological language in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Notice, uh, humility has to do with a higher power. It's not just about thinking less of yourself. It's, it's about understanding yourself rightly before God, not even before another person that you respect a lot, but understanding yourselves rightly before the judge of all the earth and, and recognizing by doing so that you are not on the throne. This is what happens when, when we're in the midst of the passions and when the passions are the dominant force in us, when the hydra is winning. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we have more divinity than we have. We can start to believe that uh, we are the sovereign, that we are omniscient. We understand everything. Why can't these idiots around us understand it? We act out of that place. But when we go to God, it's a reminder that we're not God. This is why we pray. It's, by the way, why people in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings begin um, with their name and their ailment. They say, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. It's to put themselves in the right posture for gleaning something, because if you think you have it all, or have all the answers, or if you're being driven by these dark psychodynamic forces, you're not in a position to be open to anything. And so he wants us to understand who God is, so in turn we can understand who we are. So it's theological, but it's also emotional. Look at the words that he uses. This is verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, humility involves a mood swing, an altered emotional landscape. And this is what I, what I mean. Humility means expressing authentic emotion. 
authentic emotion, feeling things. Now, authenticity, much to the chagrin of our, uh, uh, our age, is not being true to our own feelings. Have you ever heard that? Like, just be your authentic self. You do you. That's not what I mean at all. Like, I think that that's insane. Like, that perspective is crazy because many of the things that we express are toxic and sinful. No, authenticity is not being true to our feelings. It's having our feelings correspond with truth. That's authenticity. Having our feelings correspond with truth. And so whenever we do sin, whenever we seek to tear the, the fabric of God's moral world, uh, it is right that we would feel pain for doing such a thing. Whenever we let our passions control us to the point where other people are damaged, it is right that we feel pain. It is a very just thing. In fact, a needful thing. Um, uh, and, and so he wants our repentance to have some sort of emotional quality. It's not just something cerebral, nor is it something only theological, though it certainly involves those two things, but it's something that grips our emotions, our hearts. And I think his point could be deduced in this way. Healing often comes through the vehicle of humiliation or the medicine of humiliation. Healing comes through humiliation. Why? Because humiliation is one of those very few things that actually convinces us that we are wrong. Very often it's hard to convince us that we're wrong about anything. But humiliation certainly does that. It is a brutal teacher, but often teaches memorable lessons. And passion, friends, I guess this is the one takeaway that I hope, well, we take away. Passion is the eternal enemy of humility. Passion is the eternal enemy of humility because passion is driven. It is non-receptive. It is closed off. It is narrowly focused. It is peripherally blind. It is self-promoting, self-assuring, and self-aggrandizing. And it causes pain. Humility, on the other hand, concedes ground, admits error, offers apologies, is not puffed up. Humility is postured to learn, to grow, to evolve, to change. Humility says, myself and my feelings are not the center nor the ultimate test or arbiter of truth, and they are likely aberrant. So I had a, a friend who uh, heard me speak on one occasion, and I had mentioned in the sermon that when a parent sins against a child, they should apologize to the child. I did not think this was revolutionary. But the, the, the person said to me, look, it was for me because I grew up in a family where no parent would ever say they were sorry for anything, ever. No matter how they treated us, it was seen that we should just accept it. Uh, but he said, you know, I actually tried it. When I sinned against my son, I said something I shouldn't have said. I apologized to him. And I saw that that act of apologizing, of getting low, of being humble with my son changed me and my son. And it changed how we were able to connect with each other. And I was really proud of this person. I thought that was a phenomenal thing. <clears throat> and so James sees this uh, social disease of the passions run amok in his congregations. And then he offers the spiritual treatment of getting low, accepting the humiliated place, and learning from the great humiliation. Because that's where the healing flows. When you get right before God and you, and you lower yourself before God and you feel the gravity of the distance between ourselves and that which is ultimate good and true, it puts us in the right posture for new growth and, uh, and new development. So I want to close with just a word about love. A word about love. How are we to love one another? Because James' ultimate concern is that our social disease of the passions will kill love. 
The passions are hydras, incinerate, kill, and devour love. Passions are lethal to love. And some people at this point, it was funny, I was talking with some friends about this sermon, they, they pushed back and they, they wanted to defend passion, defend passion, even with all my caveats of it not being enthusiasm or zeal, they wanted to push back and they said, but passion is great. Look at Jesus and his example of passion. Did he not rage against the Pharisees? Did he not cleanse the temple with whips? How is that not passion? And how should we not emulate such a thing? That is true. Jesus did those things. Here's a fun fact. You're not Jesus and never will be. Jesus was zealous and enthusiastic, but he was not governed by an inner hydra. And by the way, when Jesus um, uh, engages in public judgments of those sorts, he is able to do that without sin because he's the sinless son of God doing those things. I'm a little more nervous about me adopting that mantle and rushing in with the same behaviors. Um, and I would remind us all that Jesus' ultimate act was not screaming, but suffering. The passion of the Christ, a la Mel Gibson, but before him the New Testament, was not about Jesus getting his way, but setting aside his prerogatives to die as a sacrificial lamb. He is the face and definition of humility. Our mentor and model is, after all, the defeated sack of bones on the cross. That is God, and that is what God is chiefly doing in the world. The greatest becoming the most humiliated. Uh, and it still begs the question, though, how are we to love? If the passions are very often dangerous, how are we to love? Well, Francis Fanelon, an old monk, and Henry Nouwen, a newer monk, give us the answer, I believe. We love with tenderness, without passion. With tenderness, without passion. Tenderness is love that is laced with humility. It is a love that is patient and kind and keeps no record of wrong. It reaches out, it absolves, it gives an 80th chance to a wrongdoer. I can tell you this, it's a concessive comment, but one that I mean from my heart. My mistakes within ministry, at least 90% of them, were created by the presence of passion and the absence of tenderness. Whenever I let passions run amok, it injured me and injured other people. My invitation to us is to love with tenderness, which is, again, love laced with humility, rather than passion. Now, how do we do this? Here's three minor points, and then I'm done. How is this done or accomplished? Here we go. Three things. Let me be your moral coach for a minute, but then I'll end with the gospel. Uh, first, stay close to your humiliation. Humiliation is your ally, not your enemy. It is the thing, ironically, which God has intended to make a new you out of you, and to do so in such a way that ego is removed from the equation. So stay close to your humiliation. Second, externalize your ardent passions. Get them out of your system. And I do not mean act them out. I mean write them out. Write them down. Take the tumult of the soul and externalize it on paper. Whenever anybody uh, has dealt with trauma, whenever anybody has dealt with a, a difficulty, whenever anybody is hijacked emotionally, I always say, don't suppress that information. Get it out of your system, but don't direct it towards somebody who would be hurt by it. Instead, I find great uh, help in writing it down because it becomes less possessive of you as a person when it's objectified. So, for example, if you're furious with somebody, write down the meanest letter you could ever write, and then don't send it. Or wait a week, because by the time a week goes by, you will redact that letter in significant ways if you're a non-crazy person. 
So externalize your ardent passions, don't suppress them. And third, we present our passions to a humble Christ. We take the hydra within and we give it to God. There is only one slayer of dragons, after all, of leviathans, of hydras, and that is the victorious Christ, the Christ who became nothing so that we would gain everything. Friends, Christ died for you. He died to save you from your sin and died to save you from yourselves. So may this humblest and mightiest sacrifice redeem and remake us. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your